0: Section 23 of Essays and Reviews by Charles Hodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. God in Christ, Part 1. Footnote. God in Christ, three discourses delivered at New Haven, Cambridge, and Andover, with a preliminary dissertation on language by Horace Bushnell, Hartford, Brown, and Parsons, 1849, pages 356. Princeton Review, April 1849 End footnote. The doctrines of the Trinity, Incarnation and Atonement are the common property of Christians. They belong to no sect and to no country. Any assault upon them, any explanation or defence of them is a matter of general interest. These doctrines are discussed in the volume now before us. It is addressed, therefore, to the whole Christian public and not exclusively to New England. On this account we are disposed to call the attention of our readers to its contents. We are the more inclined to take this course, because the character of the work and the peculiar circumstances of its origin are likely to secure for it an extensive circulation. We hardly think indeed that it will produce the sensation which many seem to expect. Dr. Bushnell says, Some persons anticipate, in the publication of these discourses, the opening of another great religious controversy. This expectation he does not himself entertain, because, he says, I am quite resolved that I will be drawn into no reply unless there is produced against me some argument of so great force that I feel myself required out of simple duty to the truth either to surrender or to make important modifications in the views I have advanced. I anticipate, of course, no such necessity, though I do anticipate that arguments and reviews very much in the character of that which I just now gave myself will be advanced such as will show off my absurdities in a very glaring light, and such as many persons of acknowledged character will accept with applause as conclusive or even explosive refutations. Therefore, I advertise it beforehand to prevent a misconstruction of my silence, that I am silenced now on the publication of my volume. This passage clearly indicates that an effect is expected from these discourses, such as few sermons have ever produced we are disposed to doubt as to this point. We should be sorry to think that the public mind is in such an unhealthy state as to be much affected by anything contained in this volume. Everything from Dr. Bushnell has indeed a certain kind of power. His vigorous imagination and his adventurous style cannot fail to command attention. There is in this book a great deal of truth pungently presented, and there are passages of exquisite beauty of thought and expression. Still, with reverence, be it spoken, we think the book a failure. In the first place, it settles nothing. It overturns, but it does not erect. Men do not like to be houseless, much less do they like to have the doctrines, which overhang and surround their souls as a dwelling and a refuge, pulled to pieces that they may sit sentimentally on the ruins. If Dr. Bushnell takes from us our God and our Redeemer, he is bound to provide some adequate substitute. He has done no such thing. He rejects the old doctrine of the Trinity and Incarnation, but he has produced no other intelligible doctrine. He has not thought himself through. He is only half out of the shell, and therefore his attempt to soar is premature. He rejects the doctrine of three persons in one God. He says, it seems to be agreed by the Orthodox that there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, in the divine nature. This he denies and argues against. Pages... 130 to 136. In opposition to such a trinity, he presents and urges the doctrine of a historical trinity, a threefold revelation of God. But then, the old house down, and the new not keeping out the rain, and tottering under even the builder's solitary tread, he tries, though too late, except as an acknowledgment of failure, to reconstruct the old. What Trinitarian wishes more, or can say more than Dr. Bushnell says, on page 174, "'Neither is it any so great wisdom, as many theologians appear to fancy, to object to the word person, for, if anything is clear, it is that the three of Scripture do not appear under the grammatical forms which are appropriate to person, I, thou, he, we, they, and, if it be so, I really do not perceive the very great license taken by our theology when they are called three persons.'" Besides, we practically need, for our own sake, to set them out as three persons before us, acting relatively towards each other, in order to ascend into the liveliest, fullest realisation of God. We only need to abstain from assigning to these divine persons an interior metaphysical nature, which we are nowise able to investigate, and which we may positively know to contradict the real unity of God. Quote. To all this we say Amen then what becomes of his arguments against three persons in the divine nature? What becomes of his cheating mirage of a trinity, a trinity of revelations? He takes away the doctrine on which the spiritual life of every Christian rests, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and gives us a God historically three, and then admits that the scriptures teach, and that we need, a God personally three. Dr. Bushnell cannot reasonably expect to convert others until he has completed the conversion himself. This half-ism is manifested also in what he says of the person of Christ, pages 158 to 167. He presents all the usual objections against the assumption of a twofold nature in the Redeemer. He insists that it is God that appears under the limitations of humanity, and that of the divine nature is to be predicated the ignorance, subordination, and suffering ascribed to Christ. He commits himself fully to the Apollinarian view of Christ's person, and then his heart or his conscience smites him. His unsteady head again reels, and he gives it all up. When categorically demanded whether he renounces the divine and life-giving doctrine of God and man in two distinct natures and one person, he falters and says, It may be imagined that I intend in holding this view of the Incarnation or of the person of Christ, To deny that he had a human soul, or anything human but a human body, I only deny that his human soul or nature is to be spoken of or looked upon as having a distinct subsistence. Page 168 But this we all deny. Whoever heard of two distinct subsistences in Christ? If Dr. Bushnell has got no further than this, he has not got beyond his catechism. For it is there taught there is but one subsistence, one suppositum intelligens, one person in Christ. He returns, however, to his idolon, to his Christ without a soul, a Christ who is no Christ, almost on the next page. We do not gain anything, he says, quote, by supposing a distinct human soul in the person of Christ connecting itself with what are called the humanities of Christ, of what so great consequence to us are the humanities of a mere human soul, end quote. Page 156. This saying and unsaying betrays a man who is not sure of his ground. People will never confide in a leader who does not confide in himself. Dr. Bushnell has undertaken a task for which he is entirely incompetent. He has not the learning, the knowledge of opinions or forms of doctrine, nor has he the philosophical culture, nor the constructive intellect, required to project a consistent and comprehensive theory on the great themes of God, the Incarnation, and Redemption. We say this with no disrespect. We would say it with tenfold readiness of ourselves. We have the advantage of our author, however, in having sense enough to know that our sphere is a much humbler one. Machiavelli was accustomed to say there are three classes of men, one who see things in their own light, another who see them when they are shown, and a third who cannot see them even then. We invite Dr. Bushnell to resume his place with us in the second class. By a just judgment of God, those who uncalled aspire to the first lapse into the third. The characteristic to which we have referred is not so strongly marked in the Discourse on the Atonement. Here, alas, the writer has been able to emancipate himself more completely from the teachings of the nursery, the Bible, and the Spirit, Yet even here there is that yearning after the old and scriptural, that desire to save something from the wreck of his former faith which excites respectful commiseration. There are but three radical views of the atonement, properly so called, the scriptural doctrine, which represents it as a real propitiation, the governmental view, which makes it a method of teaching symbolically the justice of God, the Socinian view, which regards it as designed to produce a subjective effect, to impress men with a sense of God's love, etc. Dr. Bushnell spurns the first, rejects the second, and adopts the third. But then he finds that he has lost everything worth retaining and therefore endeavours to regain the first, which he calls the alter view. His constructive logic will not allow his holding it as truth, he therefore endeavours to hold it as form. He cannot retain it as doctrine, but he clings to it as art. He admits that it is the scriptural view, that the whole church has adhered to it as the source of life, and that it is the only effective view. Christ, he says, is a power for the moral renovation of the world, and as such is measured by what he expresses. How is this renovation effected? Not by his offering himself as a propitiation for our sins, and thus reconciling us to God, and procuring for us the gift of the Holy Ghost, but, quote, by his obedience by the expense and painstaking of his suffering life, by yielding up his own sacred person to die, he has produced in us a sense of the eternal sanctity of God's law that was needful to prevent the growth of license, or of indifference and insensibility to religious obligations, such as must be incurred if the exactness and rigor of a law system were wholly dissipated by offers of pardon grounded in mere leniency. End quote. This is really what Christ does. This is his atoning work. He produces a sense of the sanctity of the law in us. This is full out the Socinian view of the doctrine. But, says Dr. Bushnell, this is really what Christ does. This is his atoning work. He produces a sense of the sanctity of the law in us. This is full out the Socinian view of the doctrine. But, says Dr. Bushnell, it has no power in this abstract form. Quote, We must transfer this subjective state or impression, this ground of justification, and produce it outwardly, if possible, in some objective form, as if it had some effect on the law or on God. The Jew had done this before, and we follow him, representing Christ as our sacrifice, sin-offering, atonement, sprinkling of blood. These forms are the objective equivalents of our subjective impressions. Indeed, our impressions have their life and power in and under these forms. Neither let it be imagined that we only happen to seize upon these images of sacrifice, atonement, and blood, because they are at hand. They are prepared as God's form of art for the representation of Christ and his work, and if we refuse to let him pass into this form, we have no mould of thought which can fitly represent him. And when he is thus represented, we are to understand that he is our sacrifice and atonement, that by his blood we have remission, not in any speculative sense, but as in art." End quote page two five four the plain meaning of this is that the actual thing done is the production of a certain subjective change or impression in us this impression cannot be produced in any way so effectively as by what christ has done as a work of art produces an impression more powerfully than a formula So Christ, viewed as a sacrifice, as a ransom, as a propitiation, produces the impression of the sanctity of the law more powerfully than any didactic statement of its holiness could do. It is in this artistic form that the truth is effectually conveyed to the mind. This mode is admitted to be essential. Vicarious atonement, sacrifice, sin offering, propitiation is declared to be the divine form of Christianity, in distinction from all others, and he is, in that view, substantial to it or consubstantial with it. It is obvious, he adds, that all the most earnest Christian feelings of the apostles are collected round this objective representation, the vicarious sacrifice of Christ, for the sins of the world. They speak of it not casually, but systematically. They live in it, their Christian feeling is measured by it, and shaped in the mould it offers." End quote. Page 259. We do not consider this assertion of the absolute necessity of Christ's being presented as a sacrifice, or this admission that his work is set forth as a vicarious atonement in the Scriptures, as a formal retraction or contradiction of the author's speculative view of the real nature of the Redeemer's work. But we do consider it sufficient to convince any rational man that that speculative view is an inanity, a lifeless notion, the bloodless progeny of a poetic imagination. Few persons will believe that the life and death of Christ was a liturgical service, a chant and a dirge to move the world's mind, a pageant with a moral. These discourses then, unless we are sadly deceived as to the amount of religious knowledge and principles in the public mind, must fail to produce any great impression. They lack the power of consistency. They say and unsay. They pull down and fail to rebuild. What they give is in no proportion to what they take away. Besides this, their power is greatly impaired by the mixture of incongruous elements in their composition. Rationalism, mysticism, and the new philosophy are shaken together, but refuse to combine. The staple of the book is rationalistic, the other elements are adventitious. They have been too recently imbibed to be properly assimilated. Either of these elements by itself has an aspect more or less respectable. It is the combination that is grotesque. A mystic rationalist is very much like a Quaker dragoon. As, however, we prefer faith without knowledge to knowledge without faith, we think the mysticism an improvement. We rejoice to see that Dr. Bushnell, even at the expense of consistency and congruity, sometimes lapses into the passive mood of a recipient of truth through some other channel than the discursive understanding. The new philosophy, which gleams in lurid streaks through this volume, is still more out of place. We meet here and there with transcendental principles and expressions which, even the deepest chemistry of thought, the solvent by which he proposes to make all creeds agree, page 82, must fail to bring into combination with the pervading theism of the book. The presence of all these incongruous elements in these discourses is patent to everyone who reads them. In our subsequent remarks we hope to make it sufficiently plain even to those who read only this review. Our present object is merely to indicate this characteristic as a source of weakness. Had Dr. Bushnell chosen to set forth a consistent exhibition of all that the mere understanding has to say against the doctrines of the Trinity, Incarnation and Atonement? Or had he chosen to give us the musings of a poetical mystic? Or had he even endeavoured to reproduce the system of Hegel or Schleiermacher? We doubt not he would have made a book of considerable power, but the attempt to play so many incongruous parts at one time, in our poor judgment, has made the failure as complete as it was inevitable. The extravagance of the book is another of its characteristics which must prevent its having much effect. Everything permanently influential is moderate, but Dr. Bushnell is extravagant even to a paradox. This disposition is specially manifested in the preliminary dissertation on language and in the discourse on dogma, There is nothing either new or objectionable in his general theory of language. The whole absurdity and evil lie in the extravagant length to which he carries his principles. It is true, for example, that there are two great departments of language, the physical and intellectual, or proper and figurative, the language of sensation and the language of thought. It is also true that the latter is to a great extent borrowed from the former. It is true, moreover, that the language of thought is in a measure symbolical and suggestive, and therefore of necessity more or less inadequate. No words can possibly answer accurately to the multiplied, diversified, and variously implicated states of mind to which they are applied. In all cases, it is only an approximation. Something is always left unexpressed, and something erroneous always is, or may be, included in the terms employed dr Bushnell, after parading these principles with great circumstance, presses them out to the most absurd conclusions. Because language is an imperfect vehicle of thought, no dependence can be placed upon it. There can be no such thing as a scientific theology, no definite doctrinal propositions, creeds and catechisms are not to be trusted, no author can be properly judged by his words, etc, etc. See pages seventy two, seventy nine, eighty two, ninety one, et sic and the discourse on dogma, passim. As creeds mean nothing, or anything, he is willing to sign any number of them. He has never been able to say, he says, to sympathise at all with the abundant protesting of the New England Unitarians against creeds. So far from suffering even the least consciousness of restraint or oppression under any creed, I have been the readier to accept as great a number as fell in my way, for when they are subjected to the deepest chemistry of thought, that which descends to the point of relationship between the form of the truth and its interior formless nature, they become thereupon so elastic and run so freely into each other that one seldom need have any difficulty in accepting as many as are offered him. Quote. Page 82. This is shocking. It undermines all confidence even in the ordinary transactions of life. There can on this plan be no treaties between nations, no binding contracts between individuals, for the chemistry, which can make all creeds alike, will soon get what results it pleases out of any form of words that can be framed. This doctrine supposes there can be no revelation from God to men, except to the imagination and the feelings, none to the reason." It supposes that man, by the constitution of his nature, is such a failure that he cannot certainly communicate or receive thought. The fallacy of all Dr. Bushnell's reasoning on this subject is so transparent that we can hardly give him credit for sincerity. Because, by words a man cannot express everything that is in his mind, the inference is that he can express nothing, surely, because each particular word may be figurative and inadequate." It is argued that no number or combination of words, no variety of illustration, nor diversity in the mode of setting forth the same truth, can convey it certainly to other minds. He confounds, moreover, knowing everything that may be known of a given subject, with understanding any definite proposition respecting it. Because there is infinitely more in God than we can ever find out, therefore the proposition, God is a spirit, gives us no definite knowledge, and may as well be denied as affirmed. His own illustration on this point is the proposition, man thinks, which, he says, has a hundred different meanings. Admitting that the subject man in this proposition may be viewed very variously, and that the nature and laws of the process of thought predicted of him are very doubtful matters, this does not throw the smallest obscurity or ambiguity over the proposition itself. It conveys a definite notion to every human being. It expresses clearly a certain amount of truth, a fact of consciousness, which, within certain limits, is understood by every human being exactly alike. Beyond those limits there may be indefinite diversity, but this does not render the proposition ambiguous. The man who should reverse the assertion and say, man does not think, would be regarded as an idiot, though the greatest mental chemist of the age. This doctrine that language can convey no specific definite truth to the understanding which Dr. Bushnell uses to loosen the obligation of creeds is all the sceptic needs to destroy the authority of the Bible and all the Jesuit requires to free himself from the trammels of common veracity. The practical difference between believing all creeds and believing none is very small. What our author says of logic is marked with the same extravagance. It is true that the understanding out of its legitimate sphere is a perfectly untrustworthy guide. When it applies its categories to the infinite or endeavours to subject the incomprehensible to its modes, it must necessarily involve itself in contradictions. It is easy, therefore, to make any statement relating to the eternity, the immensity or will of God involve the appearance of inward conflict. From this, Dr. Bushnell infers, i.e., when speaking as a mystic, that logic and the understanding are to be utterly discarded from the whole sphere of religion, that the revelations of God are not addressed to the reason but to the aesthetic principles of our nature, and that a thing being absurd is no proof that it is not true. Nay, the more absurd the better. He glories in the prospect of the harvest of contradictions and solecisms the critics are to gather from his book. He regards them as so many laurels plucked for the wreath which is to adorn his brows, that we may not be suspected of having caught a little of the doctor's extravagance, we beg the reader to turn to such passages as the following. Probably the most contradictory book in the world is the Gospel of John, and that for the very reason that it contains more and loftier truths than any other. Page 57. There is no book in the world that contains so many repugnances or antagonistic forms of assertion as the Bible. Therefore, if any man please to play off his constructive logic upon it, he can easily show it up as the absurdest book in the world. Page 69. I am perfectly well aware that my readers can run me into just what absurdity they please. Nothing is more easy. I suppose it might be almost as easy for me to do it as for them. Indeed, I seem to have the whole argument, which a certain class of speculators must raise upon my discourses, In order to be characteristic, fully before me, I see the words footing it along to their conclusions, I see the terrible syllogisms wheeling out their infantry on my fallacies and absurdities. Page 106. He laughs at syllogisms as a ghost would at a musket. Syllogisms are well enough in their place, but the truth, he teaches, is perfectly consistent with absurdity, and therefore cannot be hurt by being proved to be absurd. He says, there may be solid, living, really consistent truth in the views I have offered, considering the Trinity and Atonement as addressed to feeling and imagination, when, considered as addressed to logic, there is only absurdity and confusion in them. End quote. Page 108. The Incarnation and Trinity offer God not so much to the reason or logical understanding as to the imagination and the perceptive or aesthetic apprehension of faith. Page 102. They are to be accepted, he elsewhere says, and addressed, quote, to feeling and imaginative reasons, not as metaphysical entities for the natural understanding, quote. page 111. It is among the first principles of the oracle of God that regeneration and sanctification are not aesthetic effects produced through the imagination. They are moral and spiritual changes wrought by the Holy Ghost, with and by the truth as revealed to the reason. The whole healthful power of the things of God over the feelings depend upon their being true to the intellect. If we are affected by the revelation of God as a father, it is because he is a father and not the picture of one. If we have peace through faith in the blood of Christ, it is because he is a propitiation for our sins in reality and not in artistic form merely. The Bible is not a cunningly devised fable, a work of fiction addressed to the imagination. It would do little for the poor and the homeless to entertain them with a picture of Elysium. It would not heal a leper or a cripple to allow him to gaze on the Apollo, nor will it comfort or sanctify a convinced sinner to set before him any sublime imaginings concerning God and atonement. The revelations of God are addressed to the whole soul, to the reason, to the imagination, to the heart and to the conscience. But unless they are true to the reason, they are as powerless as a phantasm. Dr. Bushnell makes no distinction between knowing and understanding, because it is not necessary that the objects of faith should be understood, i.e. comprehended in their nature and relations. He infers that they need not be known. Because God is incomprehensible, our conceptions of him may be absurd and contradictory. This is as much as to say that because there are depths and vastnesses in the stellar universe which science cannot penetrate, nebulae which no telescope can resolve, Therefore, we may as rationally believe the cosmogony of the Hindus as the mechanic celeste. It is plain the poetic element in Dr. Bushnell's constitution has so completely swallowed up the rational and moral he can see only through the medium of the imagination. Through that medium, all things are essentially the same. Different creeds present to his eye, in fine frenzy rolling, only the various patterns of a kaleidoscope. It may be well enough for him to amuse himself with that petty toy, but it is a great mistake to publish what he sees as discoveries, as though a kaleidoscope were a telescope. As one other illustration of our author's spirit of exaggeration, we would refer to what he says of his responsibility for his opinions. No man will deny that we are all in a measure passive in the reception of any system of doctrine, that the circumstances of our birth and education, and the manifold influences of our peculiar studies and associations, and especially, as to all good, of the Spirit of God, determine in a great measure our whole intellectual and moral state. But under these ab-extra influences and mingling with them is the mysterious operations of our spontaneous and voluntary nature, yielding or opposing, choosing or rejecting so that our faith becomes the most accurate image and criterion of our inner man. We are what we believe. Our faith is the expression of our true moral character and is the highest manifestation of our inward self. We are more responsible, therefore, for our faith than even for our acts, for the latter are apt to be impulsive, while the former is the steady index of the soul, pointing Godward or earthward. Dr. Bushnell, however, pushes the admitted fact that outward and inward influences have so much power over men, to the extent of denying all responsibility for his opinions. I seem, he says, with regard to the views presented, I seem, he says, quote, with regard to the views presented, to have had only about the same agency in forming them, that I have in preparing the blood I circulate, and the anatomic frame I occupy. They are not my choice or invention so much as a necessary growth, whose process I can hardly trace myself. And now, in giving them to the public, I see only to have about the same kind of option left me that I have in the matter of appearing in corporal manifestation myself, about the same anxiety, I will add, concerning the unfavourable judgments to be encountered, for though a man's opinions are of vastly greater moment than his looks, yet if he is equally simple in them, as in his growth, and equally subject to his law. He is responsible only in the same degree, and ought not, in fact, to suffer any greater concern about their reception than about the judgment passed upon his person. End quote. Page 98. Hence the sublime confidence expressed on page 116. Quote, the truths here uttered are not mine, they live in their own majesty. If they are rejected universally, then I leave them to time, as the body of Christ was left, believing that after three days they rise again, quote. We venture to predict that these days will turn out to be demiurgic. All we have yet said respecting the characteristics of these discourses might be true, and yet their general tendency be good. It is conceivable that a book may pull down rather than construct, that its materials may be incongruous and its tone exaggerated, and yet its principles and results be in the main correct. This, we are sorry to say, is very far from being the case with regard to the volume now before us. Its principles and results are alike opposed to the settled faith of the Christian world. This we shall endeavour as briefly as possible to demonstrate. We have already said that the spirit of this book is rationalistic. The rationalism, which we charge on Dr. Bushnell, is not that of the deists, which denies any higher source of truth than human reason, nor is it that rationalism, which will receive nothing except on rational grounds, which admits the truths of revelation only because they can be proved from reason, though not discovered by it. The charge is that he unduly exalts the authority of reason as a judge of the contents of an admitted revelation, All men do, of necessity, either expressly or by implication, admit that reason has a certain judicial authority in matters of faith. This arises from God's being the author both of reason and revelation, and he has so constituted our nature that it is impossible for us to believe contradictions. We may believe things which we cannot reconcile, but we cannot believe any proposition which affirms and denies the same thing. Contradictions, however, are carefully to be distinguished both from things merely incomprehensible and from those which are not made evident to us, and which, for the time being, we cannot believe. A contradiction is seen to be such as soon as the terms in which it is expressed are understood. That a thing is and is not, that the whole is less than one of its parts, that sin is holiness, that one person is three persons or two persons are one, are, at once and by all men, seem to be impossibilities. A contradiction cannot be true. What is incomprehensible may be. Its being incomprehensible may depend on our ignorance or weakness of intellect. What is incomprehensible to a child is often perfectly intelligible to a man. While, therefore, we cannot be required to believe contradictions, we are commanded to believe the peril of salvation much that we cannot understand. Men often confound these two classes of things and reject as contradictory what is merely incomprehensible. This, however, is rationalism. It is an abuse of the Judicum Contradictionis, which belongs to man. It is a still more common form of rationalism to reject doctrines because they are distasteful or because they conflict with our opinions or prejudices. Of such rationalism the church is full. Men's likes and dislikes are, after all, in a multitude of cases, their true rule of faith. It is with both these forms of rationalism we think Dr. Bushnell's book is chargeable. With him, the questions respecting the Trinity and Incarnation are not questions of scriptural interpretation. He scarcely, especially as to the former, deigns to ask what does the Bible teach. The whole subject is submitted to the constructive logic. Can the church doctrine on these points be reduced under the categories of the understanding? This, with Dr. B, is the great question. Because he cannot see how there can be three persons in the same divine substance, he pronounces it to be impossible. He admits that these scriptures appear to teach this doctrine, nay, that we are forced to conceive of God as triune, to answer our own inward necessities. But there stands logic, saying it cannot be so, and he believes logic rather than God not observing, alas, that logic in this case is only Dr. Bushnell. It may indeed be asked, how are we to tell what is a contradiction? Or what right have we to call a man a rationalist for rejecting a doctrine which appears to him to contradict reason? We answer, all real self-contradictions are self-evidently such. Of necessity, the responsibility in such cases is a personal one. If one man denies the existence of a personal God, another the responsibility of man, another divine providence, on the ground that these doctrines contradict reason, they act at their peril. It is nevertheless both the right and the duty of all Christians to denounce, as the manifestation of a rationalistic spirit, all rejection of the plain doctrines of the scripture as self-contradictory and absurd. Such condemnation is involved in their continued faith in the Bible as a revelation of God, If the church doctrines of the Trinity and Incarnation are rejected in this volume on the ground that they involve contradictions, the doctrine of atonement is no less evidently repudiated, because the author does not like it. It offends his feelings, or, as he supposes, his correct moral sentiments, just as the scriptural doctrine of future punishment offends the moral sentiments of universalists. His objections are not derived from scripture. They are the cavils of the understanding, or of offended feeling. When arguments of this sort are exhausted, he is perfectly bankrupt, and, as is too apt to be the case with bankrupts, he then turns dishonest. We hardly know where to look for a more uncandid representation of the church doctrine than is to be found on pages 196 and 197. This is the more inexcusable, as Dr. B. himself admits, that it is under those very forms of sin-offering and propitiation the work of Christ is set forth in the Scriptures, and it is to those forms he attributes all its power. But it is a contradiction to say that Christ's death under the form of a propitiation can be effective as an expression of good if his being an actual propitiation is offensive. If the reality is horrible, the representation cannot be beauty as well might the Gorgonian head be used to subdue the world to love. But if rationalism is Dr. Bushel's sword, mysticism is his shield. So long as he is attacking, no man makes more of the constructive logic, but as soon as the logic is brought to bear against himself, he turns saint and is wrapped in contemplation. He wonders people should expect a poem to prove anything or require anything so beautiful as religion to be true. He is like one of those fighting priests of the Middle Ages, who, so long as there was any robbing to be done, were always in the saddle, but as soon as the day of reckoning came, pleaded loudly their benefit of clergy. There are several kinds of mysticism, and as Dr. B recommends both Neander and Madame Guillon, who differ toto coelo, it is difficult to say which he means to adopt, or whether, as is his wont, he means to believe them all. In the general, mysticism is faith in an immediate, continued, supernatural, divine operation on the soul, affecting a real union with God, and attainable only by a passive waiting or inward abstraction and rest. The divine influence or operation assumed in mysticism differs from the scriptural doctrine concerning the work of the spirit, as the former is assumed to be a continued, immediate influence instead of with and by the truth. The scriptures do indeed teach that in the moment of regeneration the spirit of God acts directly on the soul, but they do not inculcate any such continued direct operation as mysticism supposes. After regeneration all the operations of the spirit are in connection with the word, and the effects of his influence are always rational, i.e. they involve an intellectual apprehension of the truth revealed in the scriptures. The whole inward life thus induced is therefore dependent on the written word and conformed to it. It is no vague ecstasy of feeling or spiritual inebriation in which all vision is lost, of which the spirit of truth is the author, but a form in which the illuminated intellect informs and controls the affections. Neither is mysticism to be confounded with inspiration. The latter is an influence on the reason, revealing truth or guiding the intellectual operations of the mind. Mysticism makes the feelings the immediate subject of this divine impression and the intellect to be rather indirectly influenced. The idea of an immediate operation of God on the soul is so prominent in mysticism that Luther calls the Pope the great mystic because of his claim to perpetual inspiration or supernatural guidance of the spirit independent of the word. A second form of mysticism is that which places religion entirely in the feelings, excited by the presence of God, and makes doctrine of very subordinate moment. It is not the intellect that is relied upon to receive truth as presented in the word, but a spiritual insight is assumed, a direct intuition of the things of God. This again is very different from the scriptural doctrine of divine illumination, the latter supposes the spirit to open the eyes of the mind, to see the things freely given to us by God in the word. It is only the scriptural discernment of the things of the spirit revealed in the scriptures to which this illumination leads. But the intuitions of the mystic are above and apart from the word, and of higher authority. The letter kills him, the inward sense discerned by a holy instinct gives him life. By the forms above mentioned there is a philosophical mysticism which scientifically evolves doctrine out of feeling. Instead of making the objective in religion control the subjective, it does the reverse. It admits no doctrines but such as are supposed to be the intellectual expression of Christian feeling. To this doubtless Neander, as a friend and pupil of Schleiermacher, the author of this theory, is more or less inclined. The term mysticism is used in a still wider sense, the assertion that religion is not a mere matter of the intellect, A mere philosophy, or that there is more in it than a correct creed and moral life, has been, and often is, called mysticism. This, however, is merely a protest against rationalism, or formal, traditionary, and lifeless orthodoxy. In this sense, all evangelical Christians are mystics. This is a mere abuse of the term. It is obvious that mysticism, properly so called, in all its forms, makes little of doctrine. It has a source of knowledge higher than the scriptures. The life of God in the soul is assumed to be as informing now as in the case of the apostles. The scriptures, therefore, are not needed, and they are not regarded as either the ground or rule of faith. The ordinary means of grace are of still less importance. The church is nothing. The spiritual life of the soul is not preserved by the ordinances of God, but by isolation and quietism. By this neglect of scripture, the door is opened for all sorts of vagaries, to usurp the place of truth. And the kind of religion thus fostered is either a poetic sentimentalism or a refined sensualism, which becomes less and less refined the longer it is indulged. Dr. Bushnell must remember that he is not the first mystic by a great many thousands, and that this whole tendency, of which he has become the advocate and exemplar, has left its melancholy traces in the history of the church. The position of our author in respect to this subject is to be learned partly from his direct assertions, partly from the general spirit of his book, and partly from the fruits or results of the system, so far as they are here avowed. We can refer to little more than some of his most explicit declarations on the subject. On page 92 he complains of the theologic method of New England as being essentially rationalistic. Quote, the possibility of reasoning out religion, though denied in words, has been tacitly assumed. It has not been held as a practical, positive, and earnest Christian truth that there is a perceptive power in spiritual life, an unction of the Holy One, which is itself a kind of inspiration, an immediate, experimental knowledge of God, by virtue of which, and partly in the degree of which, Christian theology is possible. End quote. In opposition to the rationalistic method, as he considers it, quote, the views of language here offered, he says, lead to a different method. The scriptures will be more studied than they have been, and in a different manner, not as a magazine of propositions and mere didactic entities, but as inspirations and poetic forms of life, requiring also divine inbreathings and exaltations in us, that we may ascend into their meaning." Our opinions will be less catechetical and definite, using the word as our definers do, but they will be as much broader as they are more divine, as much truer as they are more vital and closer to the plastic, undefinable mysteries of spiritual life. We shall seem to understand less and shall actually receive more. We shall delight in truth, more as a concrete, vital nature incarnated in all fact and symbol round us a vast, mysterious, incomprehensible power, which, best we know, when most we love. A mystic, he says, is one who finds a secret meaning both in words and things, back of their common and accepted meaning, some agency of life or living thought hid under the forms of words and institutions and historical events, He quotes Neander as saying that the Apostle John, quote, exhibits all the incidents of the outward history of Christ only as a manifestation of his indwelling glory by which this may be brought home to the heart. John is the representative of the truth which lies at the basis of that tendency of the Christian spirit, which sets itself in opposition to a one-sided intellectualism and ecclesiastical formality and is distinguished by the name mysticism. End quote. Page 95. I make no disavowal, adds our author, quote, "...that there is a mystic element, as there should be, in what I have represented as the source of language, and also in the views of Christian life and doctrine that follow." End quote. On page 347, he recommends to Christian ministers and students of theology that they make a study, to some extent, of the mystic and quietistic writers. Besides these distinct avowals, the main design of the book manifests the writer's position. His great object is to prove that positive doctrines have no authority, that the revelations of God are addressed to the imagination and not the reason, that their truth lies in what they express. The work of Christ, he says, is more a poem than a treatise. It classes as a work of art more than as a work of science. It addresses the understanding, in great part, through the feeling or sensibility In these, it has its receptivities. By these, it is perceived or is perceivable. Page two o four. It is as a mystic, he pours forth his whole tirade against theology, catechisms, and creeds. It is not by truth, but by merging all differences of doctrine in aesthetic emotions, that religion is to be revived and all Christians are to be united. It is not the philosophical mysticism of Neander which makes havoc enough of the doctrines of the Bible, which this volume advocates, but a mere poetic sentimentalism. The author would provide a crucible in which all Christian truth is to be sublimated. To the mystic, the Bible is a mere picture book, and Christian ordinances absolutely nothing. We have accordingly in this volume a discourse on the, quote, true reviving of religion, end quote, in which there is not one word said of the importance of doctrinal truth, or of the means of grace, or of the work of the Holy Spirit. Its whole drift is to show that doctrine, stigmatized as dogma, is human and lifeless, and that immediate insight, the perceptive power of the inner life, is the true source of all those views of divine things which are really operative, and that the great means of attaining those views, and of bringing the soul into union with God, is quietism. End of section 23